the old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. All right. Tis the season. Tis the season for gluttonous consumption, uh, social alienation, a drastic increase in suicides as the loneliness epidemic takes its toll, uh, being bottled up with people's families and loved ones and perfunctory consumeristic lives, uh, arbitrarily giving each other gifts as a kind of competition, like celebrating as we do all holidays by gluttonous extreme overconsumption. <laughs> Tis the season. But also a season where we embrace the act of giving gifts, of giving things without expecting something in return, although we kind of do expect something in return. That really gets us close to the topic at the heart of this whole operation, mutual aid. And to talk about this, I think I have one of the best people that I, you know, that I could, could have possibly found. An activist, not just an activist, someone activated, someone who is a perpetual force of social change and transformation, someone who is like a free radical in their life, like activating other people around them. A single mother, a single grandmother of, of uh, neurodivergent children, raising them in the deep south. Like this person is a badass. This person is, oh, hey, Amanda, what's up? What's up? I'd like to introduce everybody to... <laughs> Amanda Smith, the uh, co-host of our show, and the founder of the Appalachian Community Meal Program. So uh, a little preface, Moneyless Society isn't just a show. It's an organization. It's a social movement. It's a community, online and IRL. And our first real project, like as an organization, bringing the, the ideas we talk about into reality is a food program in the blood red deep south run by our very own. Amanda. So Amanda, what is the Appalachian Community Meal Program? Now, now we can get this uh, this artificial construct, this wrapping paper of cellophane, you know, around this thing and just talk. Right on. Let's rip it apart and get into it. So first of all, you're always so generous with your introductions. Thank you for that buildup. Uh, so the Appalachian Community Meal and Mutual Aid Project, or ACM, as people have come to know it by here in our local uh, region, um, is basically the uh the effort to bring barrier free access concept to life and help people participate in that through collaboration and also while we're at it reorient people with the concept of mutual aid all of this to empower people to uh, understand that they're inherently worth having their basic needs met and that 
through our interconnectedness, we have the ability to do that independent uh, of the system that we're living in, uh, insofar as we can share our resources and our skills and, and have tolerance and patience and space for each other. And we've been successful at it for the past year now having brought people together over uh, the, the one of the most common grounds we all share, which is the need to eat. And so uh, essentially ACM will rent a venue out. We will buy food with our funding. We will recruit cooks and volunteers to help prepare the meal. And then at the meal, at serving time and that venue, we also have present other organizations. So we're also serving as a pop-up resource hub at each of these free dinner events. So other outreaches can come forth with their information and, and, and their, their offerings to the community and meet people and meet people's needs that, that they might not have been able to have met organically or other otherwise. To me, it's a very important mission to have accomplished. And it's uh, also something that we kind of evolved into doing uh, because we just set out to feed people in the beginning and get people again together over that common ground, the fact that we all need to eat. Uh, and we just, we kind of evolved into this pop-up resource hub that I mentioned because we noticed, or I noticed at least, and reaching out to other organizations to see how we can meet the needs of their people, their demographics. Uh, I, I couldn't turn a blind eye to the fact that all these other uh, outreaches and organizations were so fractured across the community. And, and I was encountering time and again how few people were aware of these resources in their own neighborhood. So I'm like, why don't we just bring them all to the same table with the people that we're trying to help? And so that's what we've done. Uh, and we just celebrated our one year anniversary uh, in November last month. Uh, and we can say that we have served uh, upwards of a thousand or so plates of food. And we have been able to bring harm reduction supplies to the community, as well as education and awareness on harm reduction, uh, as well as Plan B and women's health support, as well as um, uh, uh, we have the, the library involved, we have the health department involved, we have counseling involved at this point. And it's been extremely refreshing and gratifying to be a part of because I didn't know that we were going to have this level of success in especially such a short amount of time, but I found myself in a radical pocket of all places in the mountains of Kentucky. People have been eating this up, pun intended, not just our free dinners, but the resources and the cohesiveness that's being built uh, through each and every event that we hold. We have repeat uh, patrons that come to all of our free dinners, and they're bringing more people with them each time. And the people that we network with and bring their resources to, the, to our table, they're bringing more resources with them and more entities and organizations with them. We're just growing exponentially every month. And I can only hope that we continue to do that throughout next year. I, I mean, that's even that seems uh, like kind of a cheesy thing. I mean, this is a great accomplishment. It really is. You can't, I can't overstate how hard it is to build something up that's real in the real world. I mean, you, like you, you've built up our meme empire <laughs> online and been like this lighthouse kind of helping to radicalize people and giving people like little doses of liberation on their bathroom breaks and bringing people right. to us, you know, to our organization and to, you know, grow this movement and this message and to remind people continually that like a better world is possible. Holy shit, we don't have to live like this. But to actually mm -hmm. like bring that into the real world and and like activate a community with it. And like this is this is how you uh 
you hide the pill in the dog food, mm-hmm. you know, of like radical systemic change in society by meeting people's needs. I mean, I'm quick to rem- remind people that the Black Panther's breakfast program was declared the greatest threat to American empire. Yeah. It, the empire, the entire thing was young, working class, black activists, radicals, communists, whatever you want to call them, getting food to people, doing what the government wasn't doing, doing what the private yeah. sector couldn't do or didn't want to do. Right on. And yeah, it's, it's radical. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what the best part is, uh, another observation I've made throughout the past year is uh, in most cases where we're trying to do things that could be uh, comparable to what, like you just mentioned, the Black Panthers, the Free Breakfast Program, communist type actions, uh, I suspected we would have a much harder time getting people to come to our table for those very reasons because of um, negative affiliations, like people just assuming, oh, you are communist, oh, Red Scare, oh, you don't support capitalism and you're not political and you're not religious and all this jazz, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna come near you. Uh, but like we have everybody at our table and I will say we do have an advantage for the fact that we live in a college town, Berea college is our neighbor. Uh, so that helps a lot, but the fact that, uh, we're all just coming there to eat seems to actually be working and causing people, or at least helping people to set those differences aside where there's politics or religion or economics or whatnot. And like, I have yet to see a frown on anyone's faces at our dinners, not even trying to like romanticize it or blow it up, but it's true. And there are people who attest to it. Um, and something I want to mention at this point is a conclusion I've come to through doing this work and doing it in the way that we are is that by bringing people together of the same community in front of each other, across the table from each other, they, they become acquainted with those faces through the conversation and through the meal that they share and they're no longer strangers they realize who their neighbors are they realize that they didn't know who their neighbors were like people that live on different sides of town might share a meal across the table from each other at one of our dinners and from then on know who each other are and i would like to think that that would make it harder for those people to turn their cheek if they see the other person experiencing a hardship or being culturally or culturally or structurally oppressed so that's another layer of cohesiveness that we've been um, recognizing and trying to build on and this just started with a, you know the crazy idea of Feeding, feeding people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so because of, like you said, uh, as you refer to it, the meme empire, which again, is very generous and I appreciate that recognition because in this journey, it's, it's becoming um, clear that that first phase of organizing, though virtual, was going to be an asset to me being able to realize anything like IRL on the ground. Uh, and so, yeah, I've done the whole meme thing for the first couple of years and I still do it, but not as much because now I'm doing things IRL. Uh, but all that to say, we obviously gained a lot of attention from all corners of the globe, but right here in America over, uh, in Northern California, we grabbed the attention of a nice gentleman with organization by the name of Humanist Mutual Aid Network. He reached out and he said, I've always had an interest in Appalachia and we, we fund all these third world groups, but I want to help people right here at home. What can you do with a thousand dollars? So last November in 2022, he donates a thousand dollars to Moneyless Society and 
we just took it and run with it. And when I say we, I made a post in a local forum and said, hey, if you're tired of dealing with food scarcity and you would like to help feed people, meet me at the library at 6 p.m. And the <laughs> most, un literally, that's all I did. And the most unsuspecting people showed up. Like I was saying, uh, middle-aged white women like me, uh, uh, two of them had worked previously with a local uh, homeless support group. And another one and her daughter, huge, amazing, wonderful radicals, uh, had just been looking for an opportunity to do something like this. And they're all still with us to this day, making it happen month after month. Well, I, I just want to say that uh, it's really powerful point that a thousand dollars has fed a thousand people, you know, pretty much. Like, yeah. Like it, that little small investment of financial capital put into people who know how to activate a community and know how to work relationally and know how to go into the moneyless society, the moneyless aspects of society it just shows how powerful it is and how little we need. We do need a little push, you know, mm -hmm. a little ship in a bottle needs a, a, needs a gust of air to push it across. But once you can get out into the ocean, out of like the, <laughs> the harbor that's clogged with, you know, speedboats and, uh, and industrial fishing and, and you get out into the sea, those winds of humanity and, and connection and giving and sharing, which are the substrate on which our very essence comes from, that it's intuitive for all of us to give and receive. I mean, and that's, that's really mm -hmm. like the, the core it of is. this all is, is the gift is the gift is, is obvious and it's, it saves money <laughs> and it saves humanity. Really. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've been so wildly successful in our first year is uh, thankfully, a lot of the people in this town and this community were so ready for that opportunity to give. Um, I, I've been approached by different members of the community and, and, it's, and it's weird because these are people that none of them knew each other. Uh, but they all had the same story to tell. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing because we're getting tired of the old white money in town that won't allow for any of this to take place. Uh, and at first I had to like hold back my ego a little and like, oh, wow, that, that, that makes me feel nice that they think that I'm doing this. But, you know, again, I have to assert all these people that showed up in the beginning that are still with us that show up every month are the reason that this continues to live on. Um, but again, it just gets back to people are ready to do something about the way that we're being forced to live right now. And those people are in unsuspecting places. And I think the ACM, if nothing else, serves as a shining example of that being, again, that we are located in the mountains of Kentucky of all places. And there are, uh, there's a diverse group of people that are eager to get involved and do get involved. They cook meals, they, they, shop for for deals so we have more food to go further uh we've all uh, spent our time and energy to reach out into the community and bring more resources to the table so we can meet a diverse uh spectrum of needs um people are ready uh and if they're not already radicalized they're on the way to it and it's so amazing to witness let alone be a part of and be considered uh, responsible for it well, it really, it really just shows like, if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. And that what's truly radical, what's truly profoundly radical isn't the, you know, revolutionary posturing and Che Guevara t-shirts and, you know, guillotine memes. It's mm -hmm. feeding people. It's reconnecting to humanity. It's, it's 
creating structures that change people's material conditions. Imagine that. And mm-hmm. that is the vehicle to change the way that they think and feel. And right. Past the distrust and the fear and the alienation and the politiza- politicization and the polarization and, and all these veils and mirrors that keep people from just coming back to what is absolutely natural. Like unpopular opinion and hard pill to swallow, but what if we done enough IRL work that we didn't need these meme machines? We didn't need to build meme empires to try and influence people to do this in real life work. Like I know a lot of people aren't going to like that, but that's the direction we need to be heading in folks. Just like moneyless society is poised to, uh, we sometimes say, um, be the end all to nonprofits. Like we're a nonprofit, but we want to live in a world where nonprofits aren't necessary. Just like I would like to see so much on the ground organizing taking place that we don't need to be doing so much virtual organizing and so much shit posting to try and get people to pay attention and like jar something in them and give a damn, you know? Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love the meme game. I still love it. And I don't know if I'll ever be completely unattached to it. But I am realizing uh, more so than ever that the real value is on the ground and that there are so many nuanced pros and cons to only organizing online. And we won't get into it this time. I think that's a whole other episode. Um, But I I highly encourage anyone who wants to make a tangible, direct, positive impact on people to get offline for a little while and, and stick their neck out there and just and be like, hey, Anybody want to get together for dinner? Anybody want to talk about their struggles? Anybody have a little extra resources to throw around? Like, let you got to start somewhere. And most, most, most of the times you start small. And uh, we started small with that $1,000. And uh, all of us just happened to be in a place uh, in life where we were so ready to give back and do something about the way the world is that we ended up over some would say overcompensating, taking that thousand dollars and going as far as we possibly could with it and also using it to build a foundation to do other things with. Uh, And that's why we've been able to bring those other resources to the table because we have decided to use those funds in a way that we can include other people and exemplify what collaboration needs to look like on a micro level um, versus a macro level. And to uh, just break that down a little bit, something else I've come to a conclusion about uh, in recent months is just like with the general strike and how all these labor factions need to get together and make that happen and how easily it would come to fruition uh, as far as numbers go. We know we need a lot more work done before it would easily come to fruition. But as far as numbers go, if all these different labor factions got together and and like done a general strike, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's in the same vein of what if all these fractured organizations got together and had a resource hub once a month, every month, instead of individually and separately trying to reach people. Right. So, um, we've used those thousand dollars, that thousand, that first thousand dollars to just reach as many people as we, as we possibly can by getting as many people involved as we possibly can. Uh, there was a campaign we done back in August and I thank our most listeners now, those of you, um, who shared, cared and donated, um, we were able to install upwards of 10 AC units uh, in people's homes during August when people were literally going to the emergency room or dying. There were newborns to very old people, um, much older people, uh, people with disabilities, people with um, multiple physical diagnoses that were absolutely suffering in the heat of August here in Kentucky. And uh, we were like, this isn't okay. 
we, people can't just be let to die in the heat. This isn't okay. So we started raising money and we're able to buy 10 new air conditioning units and install those. Uh, 10 is a small number, but it made uh, the world of difference for 10 families. That's 10 families that didn't suffer the rest of that summer and maybe experienced something very bad. I um, have been really banging on about this lately because I'm jaded with the online world. I'm jaded with activism in general. I'm jaded with all the problem tellers that are not problem solvers. I was at mm -hmm. a very big activist meetup in Bologna, like the commie capital of Italy. And uh, it was a transnational strike, which is, you know, there was so much good going on. It was just people that were like, we are all in this together, you know, race and climate and migrants and gender, you know, these are all issues that are connected together. They're transnational, they're, they're transcendent issues. And everybody there was still just sort of talking about the same old tactics of like, stop the machine resistance, what, what my friend Troy Wiley calls holding actions. And I got up because it was an assembly. And I said this, this question that was basically like, okay, what would happen if you won? What would happen if you actually got it together as activists all around the world and shut the system down? What if you did the general strike? Then what? What would happen? Mm -hmm. Would you create mm -hmm. a power vacuum that fascist interests would then just exploit and and you know go beyond the soft, cuddly coercion that kills hundreds of millions of people every year into like hard military dictatorship? Or would some kind of uh, vanguard party rise up and fill the void and we'd install you know some <laughs> you know reboot the Soviet Union or whatever people think? Or would people just be in, cha in chaos or would it be distributed? Or, we don't know. Like the point was they didn't really have an answer. They'd never mm -hmm. really thought about that. One, what does the world beyond capitalism actually look like? How does it feel? Right. How does it function? And two, you know, what's going to like, what, inf what are you doing to build infrastructure for the transition and to actually get us to that post-capitalist world? And that's what I, that's, I implored them, please activists redirect energy as much of it as you put into action and, 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 you know, direct action into the mutual aid, into creating mm -hmm. networks of support that can feed people, that can put food in people's bellies. And actually, eventually, as we systematically, not individualistically, create and, and interconnect more and more points of a system to allow people to meet their damn needs, mm -hmm. not in this, through the system, outside the system, in a new system. And right. they were actively hostile. Some of them were. Some of them were very nice. But some of them were actively hostile by this because it upsets the anti-establishment establishment, which oh, is set in its ways yeah. and is so just so inept. That's failing. It's failing. Yeah, and I totally get that. And something that I've sensed recently is like that anti-establishment establishment. How ironic, but are we surprised? Because it's borderline commodified. It's borderline, you know, like a social credit thing. It's it's just. It, it's got lost in the sauce to some degree, but totally agree with you that we do have to focus on what we can do now. What are the steps that we can build in that direction? And we have to be very aware of the fact that not only do we, for the most part, not know what we're doing right now trying to organize, but we very much probably don't know what we're doing for the future. And we have got to be okay with that and be willing to sit down with each other and figure it out together. So 
I was just thinking to myself earlier today after a conversation with somebody about ACM, they were very impressed uh, by, uh, again, by uh, how much ground we've covered, how many, how many people we've helped and all that jazz in such a short amount of time. Because apparently, from what I'm gathering, uh, people in this area have had a hard time organizing efforts like that. And, and they've all experienced different reasons, different hurdles. Uh, but all that to say, even if like ACM was even more wildly successful, even if we were be even if we were able to build like some kind of you know commune, like some kind of housing co-op or labor co-op or something, and just take things to another level, uh, even if we're able to achieve some extraordinary level of interconnectedness and community living here in Berea, Kentucky, uh, we then have to be able to face the challenges that would be inherent to that accomplishment. So like something I'm always talking about is how wonderful would it be if we were able to depend on each other enough that that uh, the two stores that we have in this town, Walmart and Save-A-Lot, felt an impact. Okay, that's down the road, obviously, and maybe a little naively optimistic. But what if we were able to organize so effectively that that we were able to negatively impact these big box stores in our town? Well, that sounds great and radical and fun. But also, we have to be able to deal with that when those big box stores are negatively impacted enough that they might want to shut their doors or they might want to let people go or something like that. You know, so with every accomplishment, we we have to be ready to do more work and figure out more things. Or if the people of your town could come together and actually say, these are parasitic entities that are sucking the life out of us. They have taken countless livelihoods and they have literally poisoned our children at the expense of creating jobs. Like yeah. every one of those stores used to be 10 little small businesses, 10 little mom and pops, mm -hmm. you know, or even more, a hundred, you know, a thousand. I, it, they've destroyed local economies. And can we just point out how creating jobs is um, a proxy for wage slavery? Like that's the cover up. Like creating jobs is we're we're subjecting you. We're we're forcibly coercing you into wage slavery. That's yeah, I mean, it, the, uh, every political campaign. It's just like right here in the Appalachians with what nineteen sixty something. What was it like, President Lyndon B. Johnson? Or I don't know. Okay, but I know being an Appalachian native, we've all suffered because of that uh, Reformation Act, uh, like like reform the economics here of the Appalachians from the sixties or something. Um, that was essentially a cover up to move in rubber and chemical factories and turn. Uh, the mountaintops of the Appalachians into coal mining factories. Like, like it, it has done, like that act hasn't brought economic parity to this region at all. It's brought more destruction and more disparity to this region, if anything. Well, two, two little points there. One, I think it was John F. Kennedy that made a big impact in Appalachia and Kentucky specifically. Kentucky was a blue state for mm -hmm. like 50 years because John F. Kennedy recognized some level of poverty and gave them <laughs> a little a little bag of coins, you know, just mm -hmm. like like a king in a movie tosses down, just gave them anything at all, anything at right. all. And for 50 fucking years in a sea of red, they were a blue state, which yeah. shows how powerful it is to, to get the loyalty of a people to just basically even recognize that they have needs, which doesn't happen in this system only once. Um, and the second point is that Appalachia is a fucking sacrifice zone. It yeah. is a place that has been completely destroyed, literally destroyed. They blew the tops off the mountains. You know, the air is full of toxic particulates. The, the rates of addiction, suicide, unemployment, mm -hmm. asthma in children, cancer, cancer, all of the, you yeah. know, any any health catastrophe you can imagine. 
terrible public health, third world poverty. I mean, it, it's a beautiful place that could be a paradise that's been turned into a, a blighted medieval hell. And it's just equally impressive that you guys have been able to do this there. So I want to kind of shift gears here a little bit. And I know this might, this might make you a little, uh, I don't know, but I, I want, I want to know like more about your story that brought you to this, you know, growing up in a place like this, you know, you were, you were just talking earlier about how, you know, your, your own kids were, were telling you like, mom, you should speak more frankly, you know, mm-hmm. speak from the heart, like tell your story. So it, I know that's a big, tall order, and it could be it's a whole 10-part series. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure could. our listeners and, the, and, the, and many other people out there would, would be moved, as I am, even just understanding like the little broken pieces of glass, the little fragments of your beautiful, heartbreaking, tragic, inspiring story that, that has been able to bring you to, to create accomplishments like this, to touch people's lives. You have touched hundreds of millions of people's lives literally like through (laughs) through your hardship that sounds fluffy but it may not be altogether true or wrong and that's something that i've i've been um weighing lately sorry to cut you off but uh, uh one of my own uh as i say uh an acm volunteer and dear friend and neighbor was just telling me last night you should tell your story more often uh, and he said essentially what you did, which which really struck a chord in me. He said, um, I think it's pretty amazing that someone with your story uh, has risen to accomplish the things that you have. And that could be the example that leads other people to try to do the same. Uh, and it's, it's like nothing that I didn't already know, but it's definitely something I keep in the peripheral and like on the back burner and like kind of try to suppress because self-promotion it just the term makes me cringe like it's so gross and i hate that especially in this point in time with social media with the advent of social media self-promotion is how anybody survives these days uh like in a social economy and a moral economy and in our uh, fiscal economy um you got to be able to promote yourself and i just hate that aspect so much and it me being uh, an empath and me being an introvert and probably a neurodivergent definitely a neurodivergent it just takes so much out of me to have to insert myself into the equation when all i really want to do is take food and people and put them together and make something happen you know uh but to to answer your question more or less um or to rise up to your prompt I, as I said, am an Appalachian native. Um, I grew up on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. Um, my mother's mother, uh, she lived in a holler. And I remember experiencing all throughout my life this contrast of have and have not. Uh, my mother and father and I, and sometimes my, my much older brother, uh, we would pile up into the old Jeep Wagoneer and we would trek up the mountain at least every other weekend to take my grandmother her insulin and her food and firewood, uh, whatever it is she didn't have that she needed. Um, that was my mother's origins. She come from what I call dirt floor poor background. Uh, she grew up in that holler with her seven, six or seven siblings as the oldest and she had to witness a level of poverty that only the people in this area have ever seen. 
uh, aside from, I would compare it to uh, the kind of poverty, but but dare say maybe not even as bad as what we see in our uh, reservations here in America, but it is definitely uh, in the same vein. And uh, it's why I refer to the Appalachians as, as our, uh, as America's third world country. Um, because the, the poverty is just unprecedented um, aside from, uh, you know, places like Mississippi. So anywho, uh, getting back to uh, my, my background a little bit. So that was my mom's background, uh, dirt floor poor, um, living in a holler, and then me growing up experiencing the contrast of have and have not, taking these treks up the mountain every other weekend to make sure my grandmother, who still lived in that shack in that holler, had what she needed. Um, while on the other side of things, I'm living in a nice three-bedroom house uh, in, a, in a nice neighborhood on the outskirts of town, and everything we need is at our fingertips. We have central heat and air. You know, we have indoor plumbing. We have, we have uh, bathrooms, and we have cable and stuff like that. And I think being exposed to that contrast on top of always being one of the misfits, I was never an in-crowd person. I was usually very bullied and just never really fit in. Um, I think those two things together and just being who I am uh, organically as a neurodivergent um, kept me uh, painfully aware of the have-not side of thing. Uh, of things and always uh, led me to question why things had to be so difficult and convoluted. Um, and as I grew older into my teenage years and my early 20s, uh, I became, like most young adults do, very anxious about what I was going to do with my life and that anxiety coming from what was being imposed on me by my community, by my peers and by the people we went to church with and the people I worked with and my own family, because they all thought that's what, you know, they're supposed to do is, you know, guide me to settle down, have kids and find a job and whatnot. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I ended up conceiving my uh, high school year and I ended up being a very young mother of three by the age of 21. And I ended up forfeiting a full scholarship to the Art Institute of Atlanta because of the upbringing that I had was extremely religious and Republican. And the town that I lived in was, was borderline Puritan. And I was afraid to challenge any of those things, being young and dumb and, and not very full of, of any knowledge outside of what uh, the culture uh, that I knew. Um, Fast forward 20 years later, my kids are grown. We have been through the throes of trauma that we could, in fact, do a miniseries on. Uh, everything from uh, living through the opioid pandemic that hit our county and our rural area very hard. Um, my kids being neurodivergent, autistic, and on a range of other things, having to deal with the public school system that wouldn't A, acknowledge their needs, let alone B, support them in that um, dealing with uh, abject poverty uh, off and on throughout our entire lives. Um, and then most recently in the past five years, uh, having lost both my parents and then our home in a house fire and then my job to the pandemic. Uh, and then just ending up with absolutely nothing and almost no one aside from my kids, whom I still needed to take care of. Um, and so... I just happen to be lucky enough that in my ranting and venting and like, I'm going to say visceral expressions, writing about these experiences and the feelings I was having and the things I was grappling with, 
that I caught the attention of our dear friend and comrade Matt Holton, who originally uh, founded Moneyless Society with all of his earnest work in research and writing. Uh, and uh, he invited me to write some articles. And it kind of just snowballed from there. It went from writing articles to uh, posting memes to that that being the niche that I landed in, taking over the Facebook and building it up with the Instagram and helping us uh, start a Twitter and a TikTok and then getting on this podcast with you. And yeah, that pretty much sums it up. A life of trauma and poverty uh, that eventually and thankfully led into an opportunity to build something meaningful uh, on that on that um, rocky foundation. Thank you for that. I mean, well, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's hard to uh, tell your own story, you know? I think a lot of people don't even think they have a story, you know? Yeah. I think it's just a bunch of shit that happened to them, and there's no order to it. There's no meaning. And, and without meaning, so I was telling a friend today who's just always been going through it. First of all, I said, like, well, you're being prepared, like it or not by some higher intelligence or higher stupidity <laughs> to become someone strong enough to, to deal with the macro trauma, the meta crisis, the, the, the collapse that we're experiencing. And it's a really interesting kind of inversion, a redistribution of karmic spiritual wealth that those of us who had it good and who have a cushy life and everything worked out for them uh, are going to be caught with their pants down around their ankles and on mm -hmm. fire. Um, when the floor keeps, when the rug gets pulled out and the table gets turned and all the mixed metaphors come at them at once, when this whole world, this whole illusion, this whole delusion comes crashing down. And so my liberation was story was to see, hang on, there's a story in this. This isn't mm -hmm. just some random suffering. This isn't something that's that's in me. This is something that, that I am a part of, and all of us are a part of something. I remember interviewing um, a lot of uh, unhoused people at this Freedom Bridge, is what we called it, mm. in the hope that everyone there would find their freedom from heroin addiction. And I was, this guy was telling me his story, and his name was... Uh, his name was One-Eyed Jack. The first thing he said to me was... Uh, he sounds lucky. Know, that's irony. He just had his eye blown out. Uh, oh, that's not lucky. Gunshot. That, that's not lucky and at the all. First I... thing, the first thing he said to me was, not everybody gets a fair shot. And oh. his first memory was watching his mother get killed by his father. And in the process of him telling his story to the camera, he stopped. And he was like, you know... When I say all this stuff, I never said this stuff before. He was like, I never said any of this. But when I say this to you, I see there's I see there's a story here. You know, like he mm -hmm. it was really powerful for him to just share that. And I think the power in all of us owning our stories, our lives, mm -hmm. purposefully, to see the meaning in it, to see the purpose, to see that it's it's almost a privilege to suffer in these ways, to suffer so extremely that you are jettisoned out of society, that your heart breaks so intensely so seriously it, it explodes with the force to crack the whole world around you mm -hmm. and let you see that holy shit i'm living in a lie and maybe things can be better maybe things don't have to be this way wait a minute 
hold on, if what I've been through is <laughs> a construct, you know, a dream, a nightmare, and and by being thrown out of that and finding love and finding reality and finding truth and finding a sense of who we really are and really finding ourselves, if I can change, then the whole fucking world can. Yeah. And if, if I am as intoxicated and inspired and filled up with the love and the camaraderie and community and the courage and the jubilation of like finding answers and solutions than other people could be. Yeah, that pretty much takes the word out of my mouth. That story is the most valuable thing you have. And it's the evidence that you have that this fucking system is broken. You know, we don't need to go into the poverty statistics, but I don't know, real quick, I was, I was thinking about this, that like, how absurd is it that we have to create meme machines to get people to realize how fucked up the world is or mm-hmm. to get them to realize that they're not alone? Like the, what, something mm-hmm. you said on the first ever episode of this show, you were like, you had this breakdown, this realization, like, wait a minute, if I'm feeling this way, maybe someone else is. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and obviously that's a key takeaway. Um, I, I, and it sounds, and it is fundamental. Uh and maybe it even sounds a little oversimplified, but literally, like you just experienced, like you just talked about the guy with the gunshot, and I just talked about, you know, my experience with poverty. Like, there's going to be a measurable amount of people that are going to relate to one or both of those stories in some form or fashion. Not everybody ends up like the poor guy with one eye. Not everybody's experienced what I have to a T. But uh, that common ground is more important than ever before. I mean, and I, I'm sure people have said that throughout history, but let's look at what we're experiencing right now, where the cost of living is so astronomical that three jobs pays the bills and maybe buys your groceries. I mean, we need to be getting together on whatever common ground we can agree on at this point and running with it, just like we have with ACM. Like you were saying earlier, building those um, networks of support uh, is essential to being able to transition because on the other side of that transition, okay, we got to the other side of the rainbow. What do we want to do with it? Like if you don't build these relationships now and discover that common ground now, then when you maybe achieve your goal without having done that already, um, it's just going to fall away like a fad diet. Like, okay, great. You, you met your goal, but now what? Are you going to be able to stick with it? Are you going to be able to sustain that goal? Um, not if you haven't formed some really meaningful and strongly cohesive relationships. Uh, and not to say that I'm like the expert at it at this point, but I, I am kind of proud of, of how I've been able to come out of my shell and start to do it. And what's even more gratifying is seeing other people realize in real time their capabilities, their ability to connect with people. These are people who thought like me, they just had another, you know, sob story like everybody apparently does. And that's totally normal. And why bother telling it? And especially to people that I don't even know. Uh, And why would I show up to any event in town if I'm so poor that nobody else wants to see me in their establishment? You know, it's those, it's overcoming those kind of psychological hurdles um, that I think has been the first step for ACM at least in order to get people together and, and get them out actualizing back on the uh the meme thing this sort of pipeline from you know online to irl i posted this frustrated little tirade that kind of blew up and went viral the other day that was like just just frustrated with all and these kudos to you radical aesthetic 
you know, mm-hmm. these people wrapped up in all these echo chambers and antiquated ideologies and communists and socialists and all these people playing this identitarian game where they're like, I'm a whatever. And they're not doing anything though. They're just declaring themselves that it's like that. It's like that, you know, I declare bankruptcy. Like that's not how it works, dude. Like <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't just speak it into existence. Like how a lot of people are just not. saying like, I declare a general strike, you know, like we have to work at it. It's like so many of these people have this radical identity and they're playing this game caught in these matrices of corporate, you know, information manipulation and algorithmic sort of social control to push them into these echo chambers, to get them agitated and and arguing and defining themselves in this, this fake radical way. And it's mm-hmm. actually actively distracting them from getting involved in their communities and fighting to change things, to have this yeah. recursive, endless yes. discussion about Vladimir Lenin and, you know, calling each other names. And it's just like theory in fighting a radical fucking concept. That's getting stuff Get done together with people in your life. Yeah. If, if you are a radical or whatever, a communist, why has it never occurred to you to get together with the people in your life to, to form a group of some kind and manage your economic life together? Mm-hmm. Radical idea. And well, I mean, I have to give a benefit. I got so much shit for that. Yeah, and 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 I'm, I think we're going to continue to get shit for it because let me tell you, I've been working on my magnum opus meme carousel. Uh, unbeknownst to you and everyone else, I have an exit planned. Let me tell you because where I have been doing this uh, boots on the ground work, and I'm hooked. I, I can't see myself spending a lot more time online. Uh, it, it's it's too contagious. It's too um, fulfilling to watch people be nourished on every level of their being uh, to stay in the online trenches. And hey, call me what you want for that. Tell me I'm running away from the problem. Tell me I'm abandoning a ship or something if you want. But it just doesn't make sense to me to continue utilizing something that ultimately is a detriment to the movement when you can make a direct impact on the ground if you so choose and enact what you have innately to work with. Um, And beyond that, sheer will alone isn't going to manifest anything. So shouting from the mountaintops of the algorithm, again, it's just, it's not going to make it happen. Is it valuable? Yes. Has it uh, brought people hope? Yes. Has it in even some cases changed some people's lives? I would arguably say, yes, we've gotten such comments from some of the, um, of our community. Yeah. And it's definitely changed mine. Yeah. I mean, like we can't argue that there isn't value to it, but, uh, it's, it's only valuable in so far as we take it offline and do something physical with it, do something directly impactful with it um but again that is another episode that i could really go down a rabbit hole on and i hope that we do uh in the near future and the possibility there to create this feedback loop between the online which has a a really important role a global role and the irl and you know even even not just irl projects but getting people into this pipeline of you know, catching them with a radical meme or a podcast or a video or a reel, whatever it is, and then getting them to, to activate it, getting them to realize like, oh, I'm not alone. And then channeling people into an organizational structure, into a group, into other people who have the same values and want to do something about it. 
And that's that's the that's the basic thing. Do something which, about it. Which is why we have Moneyless Society, and which is why we are partnering with Magnova, and and so on and so on and so forth. But I think at this point, it's very important that we acknowledge that we are to some degree speaking from some form or fashion of privilege. I do understand that not everybody who is online can do things IRL. Like I was the single mom who wanted to do more at one point and couldn't for a number of reasons, and online was the only way that I could exercise this passion and have an outlet for radicalizing myself and other people. I totally get that. And I don't mean to, um, you know, just lump everybody into one category and be like, uh, you should get well, offline and uh, go do something about it, you know, because I know that everybody can always. But you are a single grandmother raising two autistic children, three children, you know, taking care of countless people feeding thousands of human beings. I just, I, I think we don't have excuses. We don't have the luxury of having excuses at this point. We have to get over ourselves. We have to upgrade. We have to evolve. We have to figure out a way of doing this and supporting each other. And I think everybody has a role. Everybody has a role. You oh, know, yeah. Not everybody is going to be boots on the ground. Not everybody is social. Not everybody, you know, has the same skills. And that's, that's the beauty of it all. That's the beauty that, that everybody has a part to play. But we, we have to figure it out. We have to evolve and, and go beyond just talking about it. I mean, yeah. it, if I could share um, another bit of inspiration, like my story, great. I appreciate you asking. And I hope whoever heard that summary is inspired and empowered. I really do. But there are other stories um, from my other volunteers that I think would be just as inspirational. Um, you were talking about how everybody has a role to play. There is an option for everybody who wants to be involved. Um, so we are installing uh, dry food pantries in Berea at this point. This will be the first time the town has had access to food in, in this way. Um, so the street side dry food pantries are essentially like the street side libraries, the little boxes with the books in them and everybody exchanges them throughout the community and it's great. Okay, same thing, but for food. Uh, we started with one. Now we have demand for six and we have demand for upwards of 20 more in surrounding counties and as far as way as West Virginia. Uh, we're so pleased that it's had this overwhelming positive response, um, but more so for the fact that people tend to actually be grasping the weight and the value of it. The fact that it provides a no barrier access to one of life's basic needs, food. Um, but I said all that to say the gentleman who is building the pantries uh, and designed them and his wife, you know, a year ago, they didn't see themselves doing something like this. They're not what you would call radicals. They're, they're just, you know, peace loving, uh, good neighbors that you know live in the community and want to see people eat. So I think that's a little bit of inspiration. It's a huge inspiration to me that even though they don't appear to be and probably would say that themselves were not the kind of people to fall and land where they have with ACM a year later, here they are anyway, and they're passionate about it and they show up every day or every month or whatever they need to do to make things happen. Um, same goes with some of our other volunteers. Uh, being involved has changed their lives in ways that has in turn impacted other people's lives uh, in, in a very positive way. 
So I'm uh, just here to tell you, you may not know, you may not have a clue what it is you could do to contribute, but those things will emerge as you become involved. It's one of those things where you have to be willing to take a bit of a leap. You just have to be willing to go out into the community and meet folks and do things until it becomes clear where your niche is. The, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for all the yeah. buzzing. I keep getting general strike, uh, uh, general strike notifications. <laughs> Should have turned that off. Go on. Wait, the time, the time is now. It, the time going, is now. We're going. Go. <laughs> no, if only. Uh, a little. We have to build a little more mutual aid, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if we did have a general strike right now, again, what would it do? It wouldn't. It it, it could it could land a blow to the system, possibly. But it, it wouldn't transform the relationships in our society and reconnect people to the radical possibility that another world is possible. Right. So that brings us to sort of maybe the, the sort of capstone of this, this episode here is, and we'll explore this in later topics, but I do want to kind of explore a little bit like how is such a, this humble beginning is a start of something greater. It is a proof of concept of yeah. a larger ethos of mutual aid, of open access, of sharing, of a different kind of economic relationship that we're taking money out of our lives. We're saying, let's take that out here. It served its purpose perhaps, or it <laughs> doomed the planet, but we're mm -hmm. good. We don't need it. You know, and this uh, this idea of the gift economy, this this way of running our society, not as a market where we're all competing, where we're all transacting, we're trading to get all of our needs, which is this barbaric myth that humanity existed in this way of swapping bullshit for each other to meet their needs. That, oh, humanity uh, 10,000 years ago, somebody couldn't feed themselves unless they had a sack of corn to trade for a, a hog head, you know? Mm -hmm. That's just not true. For the majority of our existence, we lived relationally. And in, a, in an economy, you could call it a gift economy, where I get what I get today, you get tomorrow. You know, mm -hmm. where when somebody eats, everybody eats. And we recognize that what's good for one is good for all. Right. I mean, that this show is really about this this large scale exploration of all these alternative systems and technologies and, you know, beautiful visions like the Venus Project and really humble projects like this where people are just getting money out of their lives. But this is a start. It's it's and it's not just one start. It's this is one project in one little town, but there are others. And if this project is, is, is happening, we can find those others and connect them and start to fill, create feedback loops between them. And all yes, these yes. different movements of all these exactly. different people doing all these different things can be joined together into a system, not just isolated activities, but they're all feeding back and reinforcing each other and coming back into something greater than its parts. Yeah, yeah. Let's extract a little bit something from that and just emphasize because this exists here, you can bet your honey, that it exists in other places. Um, and maybe it, it looks different and maybe it's done a little differently, but the core of it is out there in other places. And the the goal, as I've said a hundred times over by now, the, what is this, what, season three? The goal is to pollinate, as you say, uh, these concepts in scalable, replicable ways across the landscape of the country, of the globe, um, to the point that they start to overlap, that, uh, you know, one place here, here in Berea, Kentucky, one little organization and one little town. But what if also one pops up in Lexington and also one in Louisville and also one down in Corbin and also one over in Bowling Green and also one over in Hazard? That's a state that is covered in mutual aid. 
and then it spreads into West Virginia or up in Illinois or up in Indiana or down in Tennessee. Okay, it's that's just how it works. Um, but it doesn't if we don't bother to get started somewhere. Um, I am so eager to talk more about the Pantry Project, and I would love to at this point, if you don't mind, because it is, it is another way to exemplify how potent these little projects can be on a micro level, but how it can lead up to a potent impact on a macro, uh, macro level. Um, so our first pantry was installed in a yarden, and it's the only yarden in town. And I love, love, love this neighbor for the fact that they went out on this limb and ch turned their 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 yard into a garden, um, and they have since uh, made it into uh, a business. But they have taken their surplus and donated to the ACM dinners month after month after month. So we would have locally grown produce on our table. Okay. And then they roped in another sustainable local grower who done the same thing. And then they roped in the local farmer's market who was uh, generous enough to donate some actual assets to our program, like uh, dishes, glasses, silverware, so we can be more sustainable at our dinners. Um, so that's, that's one example of how such a small project grew and grew and grew. Uh, another aspect I wanna mention, when you talk about taking money out of the equation and people gifting and sharing things, uh, something that I experienced with the pantry has really opened my eyes up to just how deeply seated uh, the shame and guilt attachment to money is in our society. I mean, I already knew it was bad. I already knew it was insidious. But check this out. So when you go to the grocery store, uh, most people, at least myself, and I think a lot of other people, we tend to keep our eyes down and try to avoid making eye contact with other people. And we don't want to be seen by anyone, especially the people we went to high school with for some reason. But we don't want to, we don't, we don't want to be seen by like our coworkers, our, our uh, family members, our friends. We just want to get in and out of the store. And we tend to avoid people while we're in a space full of other people while we're there to get our food, which we need to uh, survive with. And we get checked out and we go home. I was uh, approaching the pantry one day to to just do a check-in on it because I, I try to do a check-in every few days to make sure, uh, you know, what's it looking like? Is it clean? Is there anything in it that doesn't belong there? Is it stocked and so on? And I'll make a few posts about it or something. And as I walked up to the pantry, there was another lady walking up to it. And it was so incredibly refreshing and so profound to me that this person did not try to avoid me. They... They were there to give, and they were happy about it. And they, they met me at the pantry, and they said, Hey, I've got some soup and stuff if you could use it. And it's like so different in contrast if we had seen each other in a grocery store, and we would have went separate directions because we didn't want to interact with each other. We didn't have anything to give in that grocery store. We, had, we were just there to take and take what we could with what we brought with us. But at the pantry, it's different. Everybody knows that that's a place where they're equal and they're welcome. And that's the thing that we need to build. That's the thing we need to remember and weave back into the fabric of society. I knew, I knew this. I knew some tears would come. And I... <laughs> it never fails, damn it. It never fails. I can never keep my <laughs> shit together. You should, you should be at some of our dinners. Like, I've actually been really good for the past few months, but on, at our anniversary dinner, uh, the waterworks came on because I just had so much to be 
uh, grateful for. But anywho, um, yeah, people tend to think that it's cliche and, and, and it has been turned into kind of a cliche. Oh, just feed people or just give people what they need, you know, just um, make it easy on them or whatnot. But we, we grossly underestimate the, the value and the um, multi-level impact of making things easier on ourselves and each other. I mean, that's, that's the point of civilization, right? Is, is to decrease the suffering and, and, um, and the struggle. And, and I think that mutual aid and organizing community is the most direct path to doing that. That's been my experience so far. James Gilligan told me that uh, revolutions happen not when things are so bad people can't bear them anymore because nobody can think straight. Nobody can conceive of a new world. But it's when things start to slightly improve. It's when the silver lining breaks through in the clouds and people think, hey, wait a minute. Fuck this shit. I don't need to do this. I don't yeah. need to live like this. Uh, you, you, said, you said a word that triggered sort of a train of thought that I want to follow here if you'll yeah, indulge sure. me. You said Hazard, Kentucky. I was in Hazard, Kentucky a few years ago to um, go on this sort of exploratory expedition to possibly make a film about uh, transitioning coal miners to solar energy, which was a total bunk because the people making it were liberals who didn't really understand that they're not going to save the world by, you know, creating 15 permanent jobs in this valley. But I met the person that I met that was like the character that was the hero was this, was this amazing hillbilly entrepreneur <laughs> who was, first of all, they took me to a garbage gasification plant where they were turning garbage into clean energy, like carbon free energy, zero carbon energy. And um, this, this, this whole state of the art facility was built by this literally illiterate coal miner, a dude who could not read, who mm -hmm. figured out how to do this and made it out of scrap metal himself. And so their plan was to basically create this sort of hillbilly industrial permaculture, where they were going to buy up old coal mines and tap the methane in them to power like data centers and Bitcoin miners, and then use the heat exhaust from the Bitcoin miners to dry mushrooms that they're using for package, packaging material that are fed from this. a horse farm up above that the horse shit goes down to feed the mushrooms. And it's, it's, this is permaculture. That's amazing. Stacking functions yeah. to basically close the, the loop where there's no waste stream. We're seeing the waste in society as the fuel. And so yeah. Um, I'm pulling up a message that, that uh, I, I sent into one of our chats a few months ago about this vision that I had for this resource hub, this resource center, you know, an evolution, a further evolution of what you're doing in, in, mm -hmm. in Berea to create a physical center and yeah. a, a series of hubs around this region that does that, that creates mutual aid and service permaculture mm -hmm. where you have a physical place where people can live. It's a housing co-op joining together the housing, the tenants organizing, you know, that you guys yeah. are doing, you know, it has a garden on site. It, it is growing its own food that goes into the food programs that goes into feeding people that goes into the, the pantries. There's a sharing and access library. There's a tool library. Yeah. There's a, a board for people to share their skills. There's mutual credit system. There's mm -hmm. uh, cloud pooling where people pool their resources together like immigrant communities do. There's time banking. There's all these optional 
other forms of meeting your needs outside money. And it's a meeting place for people to come together and form these relationships to basically be the center point for a new economy. I mean, yeah. and you could feed that into basically finding those people that have been tossed out by society who are homeless, who are drug addicts. I mean, hello, Appalachia, that's the big problem. I'm, who are coming yeah. from prison and feeding them into this system where mm -hmm. you're you're working from private donations, from church groups, from government grants, from whatever, you know, funding you can get to funnel it all into this sort of, you know, syntropic system where, you know, volunteer work from all these people is going to create this labor force where people are building their own community and restoring the commons where, you know, you can imagine like a tech hub where like, you know, kids can go and learn AI or, or learn new tools or learn history or theory. You know, it, it's all volunteer. You could do a contributionism thing where people come and, and in the network, they're members and they just they do like three hours of work a week. And that acts, gives them access to certain things. And you could chain that and continually grow, I you know, mm -hmm. theoretically forever where you're creating, yeah. you're taking the burden off people, you're meeting needs. And that opens up opportunities and ideas and other people. Oh, well, well, we're doing this. Why don't we do this? Yeah. Why don't we do See, this? that's the emergent factor. That's the things we can't predict, but will are, are inevitable and good. Uh, I just want to say mm -hmm. that um, we um, we're on to that. And, um, and I can so appreciate how far in the future you can see that growth and um, and lend those perspectives to what we're trying to do here now. Um, it's naively ambitious, I'm sure, but I would like at this point next year, 2024, wrapping up December and be able to look back into the year and say, we have brought X amount of other organizations together. We have met X amount of people's needs and we are poised to have our own resource hub, brick and mortar. Like that's our next step right now is to do essentially what you described. And again, we'll have to start small. We'll have to work with what we've got around here. This is a town that, um, uh, two of the biggest buildings available. One is an old chemical factory and it's not really clear by EPA to like actually host anything in. And then the other place is right next to the tracks. And in case y'all haven't heard, I think it's been three or four, at least three now train derailments with chemicals on board have happened in the Appalachians this year. So um, I'm not really stoked about having a resource center right next to the tracks, but um, we're going to work with what we've got, start where we're at and see if we can't start to build exactly what you were talking about for the simple fact that these organizations that have the drive, the passion, the know-how and the heart to make a difference in the world need a place to operate out of where they're not pinned down by uh, exorbitant rent that, that continues to increase and uh, they're not shadowed by landlords and for-profit businesses that don't want them around. Um, and then, you know, just all the factors that make it hard to operate as a nonprofit or an outreach organization. That's my personal goal in the next year is to just see where we can possibly come together and avoid all these uh, nuances and inhibitors to our um, to, to our goalpost. Well, it's an avenue toward this vision of a new life, a new life system, a new way of living. I mean, and this is this is the innovation, the social innovation of the century, which is a new century that mm. we're figuring out that we don't need all these things we think we need to live. And that it's a hell of a lot easier to live if we work together to meet the fucking basic needs that we all share as a group, design a good system to do so, and tap into people's endless desire to help each other to do mm -hmm. so, so that we're not 
bossing and enforcing and controlling each other. And we don't need tokens and chips and, you know, <laughs> incentives yeah. in this way. We don't need to indulge in this corporate system, you know, and, and when people start to see it, it will spread and spread and spread. And it can As be being... this, this. Oh, no, go on. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just going to speaking of spreading and speaking of, you know, the mention of business and how people want to give. Uh, and I'm sorry to just beat this horse when it comes to the pantries. But another bit of inspiration I feel I feel called to share is uh, we have businesses signing up for these pantries, too. And, hey, we could sit here and argue that they just want the social credit and the clout for having one at their business place. But let me tell you whether or not that's the case, for instance, uh Berea was a dry town and just recently got voted wet like a few like months ago, like six months ago. And we have a liquor store moving in and lo and behold, they want a free food pantry. They want people to have access to a basic need that might potentially turn that customer away from their door. Because you know how many people cope with alcohol when they can't eat enough, when they're depressed, you know, and so on and so forth. So I think it's it's so profound that a liquor store wants a free food pantry in front of their door. Uh, and aside from that, we have a mental health um, slash counseling office here in town. They want a food pantry. They are recognizing that we need to meet material needs aside from uh, just counseling people's, um, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally. There, I, I think it's a, an amazingly Treat huge step forward for a mental symptoms. Yeah, instead of just people are treating symptoms. Yeah, they are, and I mean, part. I mean, I just have like a personal vendetta against the mental health system, and I, I think a lot of us do. And so for me, it's just all too gratifying to see that a mental health um, uh, establishment, part of that that institute, is saying, "Hey, uh, maybe if our people could eat better or more, they might not be dealing with X, Y, or Z." Or it might just help them in some way. Like I'm, like, can we just see that all over the nation now, please? Can we just like blink our eyes and populate these uh, non-barrier access uh, to basic need uh, outlets everywhere, and just see what kind of impact it makes and the profound changes that take place in people? All of this is, it's the beginning. You know, it's not a, it's not like the end of the story. All the story led to this. And had to lead to this and in a way could only lead to this you know you went through everything you went through as i went through everything i, I went through and in a way it's perfect and the fuck-ups were perfect and miraculous <laughs> miraculous evil was done to all of us and the the unconscious genius the and the contradiction in this monstrous system this economic system that is blindly creating its own opposition constantly by creating suffering on purpose um, is that more and more of us as things worsen more and more of us will step up to the plate and come to the table and share our gifts and that is that is the revolution you know that's really what it is it's not some you know antiquated idea of like like we're going to hold out against the government with our guns. Like we can't win that fight. Sorry, I don't think we can. Mm -mm. And I don't think we, I don't know. I don't know what world that would produce, you know? Guns and beans completely. will not get you through the transition, I'm telling you. Regardless of whether we're collapsing or whether we're 
emerging into a new world, it's the relationships, it's the friends we made along the way that that will really determine the fate of the world and the ability for us to come together and find our own place, but also to find our people and to and to find something greater than us to create a society because we don't have a society. We do not live in society. We live as individuals with individual lives, individual bank accounts, individual jobs and individual suffering. And so many of us think that our suffering is unique and I'm the only one and I don't want to complain about it. I don't want to be negative. When if we really were really honest with ourselves and we really stopped accepting and tolerating the unconscionable suffering that we go through and others go through, I think we would all say out loud, we want something else. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who have suffered enough that we've been jettisoned off the ride, we're ahead of the curb. And that's, uh, that is a privilege. And a privilege must be used. The only thing worse than having privilege is, is having it and pissing it away. So mm-hmm. I just want to say personally from the bottom of my heart that I'm so proud of you and the work you've done and the, you know, not the work, not the job, not the, you know, like I'm, I'm proud of the, the creation you've done and the growth that you have exhibited, that you've been through so much through this and that, that your hardship has led to incalculable good for other people and is only just beginning. And it is a cumulative. This is the thing about the gift that keeps on giving. This is the exponential growth that we want not the cancerous growth of, of infinite consumption, snakes eating their own tails, but Beautiful. of people helping people, helping people, helping people, helping people, helping people mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal. And thank you. And you're welcome. And um, I I don't know that I, I don't know. I, I obviously have still a long way to go, many levels of growth to obtain, but um Thanks to people like you in my life and the uh, comrades I've found here on the ground and and the the global friendships I've forged through Moneyless Society, uh, I, I, I am privileged in that way for sure. And I can see no greater good um, than to utilize that privilege and those connections to hopefully help other people have the same uh, liberating and fulfilling experience that I've been fortunate enough to have. So leave, leave us with some uh, some insight. A gift, gift, gift us a little uh, little hope for the road. Oh no, you want hope? I don't. I don't deal in hope. Um, I deal in results and impact. And uh, like I said earlier, if you want to be involved with either of those things, if you want to make a direct positive impact, uh, pardon the buzzwords, but that's just what it boils down to. Um, realize that you have a story to tell there are other people out there who need to hear it and it is the first step to empowering people to take action and realize their capacity to take action and their worthiness to be involved once we overcome those barriers the others will crumble Do you want to do something about all the issues we talk about here on our show? Do you want to learn more, get involved, and help us help others break out of the cycle? 
Step one is to join the growing community of rebels and kind hearts sharing their knowledge and passion. Follow Moneyless Society on our social media pages and spread the message to people who need it. When you're ready, you can get involved by reaching out and becoming a Moneyless Society volunteer. We need every skill imaginable, large or small, if we're going to resist the powers destroying our planet. And even if you don't have time to volunteer, you can help us build the dream with donations of any size. We create all of this community and content because it is our passion, but we need resources to get it done. Monthly Patreon donors receive cool perks like early access to future episodes, and visitors to our website, moneylesssociety.com, can buy MOSO shirts and other merchandise that help spread awareness. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll keep learning and growing with us. The goal may seem far away, but we can get there together.